Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way, and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Probably the most important thing on that list from China's perspective is it criticised Australia for speaking out on human rights when it comes to issues like Hong Kong, Xinjiang province and Taiwan, or, you know, human rights and also the future status of those territories. Hello, lovely people of podcasts, and welcome to another episode of Australian Politics Live. I am Catherine Murphy, political editor of Guardian Australia, and I'm also the host of the show. And with me, who's looking slightly alarmed at the moment, but I'm sure he'll settle, is my lovely colleague in the Canberra Bureau, Daniel Hurst. Uh, Yeah, well, we're possibly both alert and alarmed, but anyway, it'll all be good. Daniel is one of the reporters in the Canberra Bureau in my wonderful team. He looks predominantly at foreign affairs and international issues as well as a bunch of other things. And he and I thought it would be productive to come into the pod cave and have a yak about (laughs) <laughs> well, that. <laughs> well, that. It's, but it's almost so large. I'm laughing because it's almost so large. Where do you start, right? So anyway, let's start with the obvious, uh, well, I don't know if it's an elephant in the room or the region, but it, it's certainly a large presence in the region at the present time, and that's China. Daniel's devoted a lot of reporting hours over the last several weeks, really, to this unfolding diplomatic standoff between Australia and China. Now, for folks who haven't been following this issue minutely, Daniel, let's just start with what's going on in very broad terms between Australia and China. In very broad terms, uh, this year has seen a worsening in tensions between China and Australia. The most obvious trigger for that has been the call, Australia's call for a COVID-19 inquiry. But of course, that wasn't the start of it. That was just one issue among many. And there have been a series of trade actions taken by China throughout the course of this year that has targeted a few Australian export industries, including beef, barley, and others. And in the last few weeks, we've seen fears among industry of an increase in those trade actions. Has to be said, some of the measures that have been speculated about didn't eventuate, but others have in the seafood industry. Lobster exports have had Mm. issues. You've seen increasing rhetoric on both sides. You've seen the Australian government in the over the last few weeks demand clarity from China over what they're doing with regard to trade and whether they're discriminating against Australia or whether they're living up to their World Trade Organization obligations. Mm-hmm. And then from China's perspective, we've seen possibly a shift in tactics where the Chinese government has become more public in spelling out exactly what its concerns are about the Australian government's actions. And of course, the thing that set the cat amongst the pigeons this week 
was a list of grievances, as it's mm. been called by some, that was published in the Nine newspapers and on Nine News uh, and aired on Nine News earlier in the week. Basically, a list of fourteen things that the Chinese government is unimpressed with about Australia. Mm-hmm. A lot of those me- a lot of those items wouldn't be of surprise to those who've been following this closely. But seeing it all in one consolidated list really did focus the minds. It includes things like the 2018 decision to exclude Huawei mm-hmm. from the 5G, 5G. network. Mm-hmm. It includes, of course, the COVID-19 inquiry call. Yeah, glad we got back there because you mentioned that right at the start and I don't want to disrupt your flow. We'll get back to the 14 things, although we may not list all of them. <laughs> but just on that inquiry, because again, we both know 2020 has been a decade, right? And some of the people listening to this podcast could have forgotten entirely about this inquiry, right? So what, and given that's what pissed China off, not to put too fine a point on it, in, although as you said, right, it's it, it's not just that. That was sort of a culmination of things. Let's just recap that inquiry briefly. So what did Australia do that gave Beijing the shits? Excuse my French. It is excused. The Foreign Minister Maurice Payne and then Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, both publicly called in April, which was fairly early, for an international, independent international inquiry into the origins of COVID-19 mm. and also the early handling of it and called for transparency from China. The Chinese government saw this as targeted against it. Australian government and the opposition, it has to be said, in Australia both said this was an unremarkable request that there should be a full review of what went on here to avoid future pandemics or mm. ensure the world's better prepared for future pandemics. But Beijing took this as targeted against it. Mm. It said that Wuhan had just come out of lockdown and it was a bit of an, it saw it as offensive and it saw it as Australia backing up the US campaign on the virus. Which is an important point. So we're back to the list of grievances now. So the inquiry, the independent inquiry was one. Shutting uh, Huawei out of 5G was another one. What else? Which was in 2018. So it goes back away. Uh, I won't list them all. But there was also an ongoing issue with foreign investment decisions. Mm. China sees some of Australia's foreign investment decisions blocking particular proposals as being aimed against it or discriminating against it. Australia says it follows its own national interest in weighing up those things. But probably the most important thing on that list from China's perspective is it criticised Australia for speaking out on human rights when it comes to issues like Hong Kong, Xinjiang province and Taiwan, mm. uh, or, you know, human rights and also the future status of those territories. Yeah. So these are issues that Beijing sees as core interest to it, to its sovereignty, and Australia speaking out on those issues is probably the thing, in my opinion, that has caused the most angst for yes. them. Yeah, well, and, and has also seen, uh, because the government's sort of on a, what I would characterises a still relatively low-ish key sovereignty jaunt itself. And it's China criticising Australia's tendency to stick up for rights issues, for want of a better term, right, has led to all sorts of chest beating about, well, we are a sovereign nation, we are a liberal democracy, we'll say, we'll stand up for our values. Nothing wrong with that. We should stand up for our values. And Obviously, China is an authoritarian regime that is becoming more assertively authoritarian, and that's a big problem, right? So, okay, there's a rebuke about speaking out. You said a minute ago that's critical. So, it's one of the main sensitivities, yeah. I would say. Yeah, and why? Why do you think that's one of the main sensitivities? What about that has really caused? China to think there's been some sort of major shift in Australia's disposition to be friends. (laughs) Well, I mean, these are issues that Beijing has long held to be its core interests. And it goes to its 
territorial. Yeah. What it sees, what it says, is its territorial integrity, well, and it's also its China continued rule. That. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. Communist Party continued rule across what it sees as all parts of China, and so even though China is rising and becoming more assertive and authoritarian, it also is quite insecure about some of these issues.、Mm. It's quite concerned about, or has been quite concerned about, the potential for. Protests in Hong、mm. Kong to escalate and、mm. democracy movements to、uh, escalate. Acceptance of Taiwan、uh, internationally, the status of Taiwan not as a province of, not as a region of China, but yeah, as its own but as sort of effectively、country. a state. Yeah. So that goes to those issues. But you mentioned about the Australian government's positioning on this. It, it sort of it continues to say it will stand by its values.、Mm. It won't be afraid of speaking out. It won't give in to economic pressure. And it has said that the ball is in China's court for dialogue. It says it wants dialogue, but ministers haven't been able to get phone calls with their counterparts, and that freeze really arose around the time of the COVID nineteen inquiry call.、Mm. Mm. And there's no clear off ramp. And I understand from speaking to a Chinese embassy official this week that that isn't likely to change that block on ministerial dialogue, unless Australia has a think about how it approaches the Chinese government and. The request from China is that Australia has a good, hard think about whether it sees China as a threat,、mm. or whether it sees China as an opportunity. And so, China's <laughs> to go back to the analogy of putting the ball in somebody's court. China's put the ball back in Australia's court and saying, "We really need a gesture from you to say that you see us as a." As as a partner rather than a threat, and it's it's kind of interesting, isn't it? That I mean, we can talk about partner versus threat and a tick, but sort of a couple of weeks though. Well, God, I mean, here, here we have the conundrums of twenty twenty time again.、Um, possibly it was longer than a couple of weeks ago, but it doesn't seem that long ago since we had, I think, the deputy head of mission from the Chinese embassy at the National Press Club, ostensibly. With an olive branch out. I mean, there were a multitude of different ways you could read some of that speech, but it seemed as though only really a month or so ago, the diplomatic staff in Australia were sort of trying to hit a reset of sorts. But yet things have run sort of massively off the rails again over the last few weeks. Do we know why, or is it is it the sort of confluence of lobsters on tarmacs? Sailors sitting off the Chinese coast in ships, you know, sort of chest beating on either side. Like what? What sort of? I don't know. It just seemed like a couple of weeks ago, maybe there was some opportunity, narrow window of opportunity for a reset that now seems to have passed.、Mm. I could, of course, be completely wrong. So this is the time where you tell me I'm completely wrong about that. You're completely right. Oh, well, that's a relief. Anyway, <laughs> well, you're not completely but... wrong. No, I, I think you're right that there have been outreach. There has been outreach from both sides, but. The sort of core if issues, the core differences, aren't aren't just surface level things.、No. It's not just a matter of changing the way something is commented on in one way or the other. Like this is, I think Morrison said this week that it's not a case of just sitting down over a cupper and sort、mm-hmm. of sorting out the issues. These are deep issues, and that list really crystallised that for a lot of people who might not have been paying attention. That there's a long list of issues from China's perspective. Australia has a long list of issues about its concerns about actions in the South China Sea,、yeah. what's been going on in Hong Kong. Obviously, claims of foreign interference, unprecedented foreign interference into Australian politics, and a range of things like that. And not least of which, the trade actions.、Mm-hmm. So I can't see a clear off ramp at the moment because both sides have become so entrenched in 
in their public posturing on this. Mm. And I mentioned the change in tactics or what might be a change in tactics from the Chinese side. It's not just that list that was issued this week, but it was also you know, increasingly from the podium of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Beijing. Yes. The spokesperson is speaking at length about all the issues, not dealing with one or the other, but just laying out all the issues they have with Australia and saying it's up to Australia to realise, as the spokesperson claimed, Australia had spoken out of turn and needs to reflect. Mm. So there's no clear off-ramp, in my opinion. It's not about to be fixed, and both sides are sort of entrenched in their position. And it's sort of interesting, isn't it, because there is this sort of more aggressive tone to Chinese diplomacy, and in Australia more freewheeling, plain speaking than exists. Like I'm sort of bringing a kind of, you know, an, an, an ancient person's perspective to this, having been in Canberra reporting at the time when John Howard negotiated a free trade deal with China. We are in a vastly different space with our largest economic partner now than we were at that time. There was, I don't think Australia has ever kind of muzzled itself as a liberal democracy in terms of standing up for values, what we would regard as core values, but that was always done more sotto voce. It was done directly in in conversations between officials and between principals, whereas now we've got backbenchers running around telegraphing this every day of the week and also principals in the Morrison government standing up and doing it. So it's sort of been, there has been this shift both in Australia and China, but it's, as you say, Daniel, it's kind of like, where's the off-ramp? It's not obvious, is it? But then it sort of plays back into domestic politics, right? Because, like, China is now sort of framing Australia in these conversations as a client state in terms of those utterances, right? It's sort of saying, here's our list of grievances, play nice or we'll Mm. turn the tap off on multiple Mm. fronts, right? Which makes it harder for that to be taken up. Well, exactly. See, the the hotter it gets on both sides, the the more difficult it becomes for governments to manoeuvre around. And I'm kind of interested, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in your views about this. Obviously, we've got a diplomatic standoff between two governments, one in Canberra, one in Beijing. We've got a business community in Australia deeply concerned about losing access to one of its, you know, most important markets because, as I said, I'm in to go, China's our biggest economic partner, right? So the business community is kind of like, oh, gosh, guys, can't we fix this up? Can't we all hug it out and be friends? So that's happening. So, and then there's the domestic politics as well because standing up and being hairy-chested about an authoritarian country like China is quite popular in Australia politically. So if you're Scott Morrison, how do you thread those needles? Uh, it's very difficult. Mm. But it's interesting. Certainly there is domestic politics at play here in Australia. There's also domestic politics at play no, in China, in, in China exactly. where the one party state wants to maintain its rule and is, you know, keen to beat its chest um, and show its strength. So it wouldn't want to show weakness on that side. Australian government wouldn't want to show weak- weakness. A lot of backbenchers have been making quite out there comments about China. Erica Betts as one example of, of that where you know, effectively demanding a loyalty pledge mm, from Chinese-Australians mm. at, a, at, a, um, at a Senate hearing. Mm. He denies that. But, you know, in this atmosphere, there's a suspicion that the contributions from the backbench reflects a broader Australian government position. Well, um, yeah, it would be sort of, I guess it's hard for members of an authoritarian regime to understand the, the sort of looser dynamic in a liberal democracy that... You know, it's said by experts on China that China, you know, in terms of the government, they don't like surprises and they can't really fathom 
freelancing statements that are made, you know, in some sort of freewheeling values conversation about China rather than a reflective somehow of officialdom. So so there are so many complexities Mm. here. And I understand that China has raised this with Australia, some of the contributions of government backbenchers. Interesting. And when China raises that issue, the response from Australia is, well, we're we're a democracy, effectively, parliamentarians have the right to speak out, it's free speech. So that those conversations are happening behind the scenes about the contributions backbenchers are making in commenting about China. Mm. But there's been no attempt by the government to, shall in. we say, muzzle them. I would imagine it's unlikely that that would happen, given <laughs> if, they're, if they're just doing what they've been requested, it's, it's unlikely to, to mm. work. Mm, exactly. Okay, so... There's China, a quick detailed summation of where we're up to. That leads us to Japan, which has sort of been another moving part of the week that uh, I'm keen to get into because weirdly, even though it's such an important trip, I I don't know what it was about this week that sort of minimised it somehow. It sort of washed through the system really quickly Uh, and by the end of the week we were in war crimes or alleged war crimes in the Brereton report, so it just didn't really stick, whereas in some other weeks it would have. So if it didn't stick to the extent that you were unaware, if we are bringing you the news uh, that Scott Morrison uh, made a lightning visit to Japan this week, the Prime Minister went to Japan this week in the middle of the pandemic. So let's just start with some basics. So obviously there is a new Japanese Prime Minister that our Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, was very keen to meet, Prime Minister Suga. What do we what do we know about him? Well, Yoshihide Suga has been a fixture of Japanese politics. He was the long-serving cabinet secretary to Shinzo Abe during Abe's reign. So basically, as chief cabinet secretary, Suga was the daily face of the Abe administration. He took questions at press conferences once or twice a day from reporters. So he was the sort of public advocate for the Mm -hmm. Abe government's policies. Mm -hmm. He comes from a farming family. He doesn't have the political pedigree that Shinzo Abe had. He, you know, has been had been quite active in the past when it comes to trying to prod North Korea to resolve the long-running abductions issue where Japanese citizens were abducted decades ago mm. and there hasn't really been clarity about what happened precisely to, to them. People. So mm. so while he served as Abe's chief cabinet secretary, he was also responsible for, for pursuing that issue. He became really well known in the Japanese public more generally, though, when there was a change of emperor, when the new emperor became the emperor, <laughs> yes, when, when there was a new emperor, you know, yes, took yeah, the yeah. reins, what yes, shall we say? Yes. And um, <laughs> and it was Suga's job to announce the new ah, um, era right. name. So every time there's a new emperor, there's a new era yep. name in the Japanese calendar system. So Suga was the one who got to publicly announce the the, the kanji, the character the characters that would represent the new era in in the Japanese calendar. Ah, And so he became associated with this brand new bright era that Japan was confronting a year or two ago. And then when Abe retired for health reasons, stood aside for health reasons, given his political strength and given his, you know, public face, and he was the continuity candidate, Suga took over. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, it's been kind of accepted that or expected that Suga would continue most of the foreign policies of Abe, that it wouldn't be any major surprises, which has been mostly true so far, except mm. for net zero, which well, we exactly. might talk about. We will get into climate change, later. which has been a genuine revelation. It's been fascinating. I should say, too, Daniel sounds very knowledgeable about these things because obviously he's a, a studious and enterprising journalist, but we're very fortunate, too, to have Daniel back in Australia. He's been in Japan for the last few years. So 
he knows a lot about Japan and and the internal politics of Japan and obviously about the relationship between Australia and Japan. So, okay, so Morrison in the middle of a pandemic where no one's travelling anywhere, no one's doing anything face-to-face, nicks off to meet Suga, the new Japanese PM. Now, why did that happen? Mainly a signalling exercise, I think. It's so showing a street. Who's, who's it, the audience? The audience is <laughs> China is one of the audiences, yeah, yeah. Um, but also, I mean, to the Australian public, signalling that Australia is strengthening its relationship with Japan at a time when there's tensions with China. Morrison has been trying to solidify partnerships across the region rather than just let's put it crudely, putting all eggs in one basket, yes. such as China. Yes. So, so it's a bit of a signalling exercise at a time of tensions with China and also at a time of change in the United States. Yes, Australia which is, the other is solidifying. Which, yeah, we haven't really brought in America. Yeah. Yet so one of the key issues that so. they discussed was, you know, the implications of the incoming Biden administration mm-hmm. for the region. Yeah. And of course, the rise of China. So it seemed like the trip was mainly intended to signal that Japan and Australia were growing ever closer and that Australia was building relationships across the region, yeah. not just not just sticking to not traditional sticking, relationships. Well, and, and not just sticking to our biggest economic partner. Mm. So, um, okay, so trip ensues, signalling ensues, but there was there was an, a, a transaction to do. There was a major item of business. We'll come to climate change in a minute, but there was there was a defence pact which was inked in some shape or form. But I, I'm setting up. There, there, it's inked this, in this, principle. Well, it's a, it bit, of, signed a bit of a grey area in this pencil. one. Yes, yeah, <laughs> signed in pencil exactly. So, okay. So, what is this? Def- Let's just start with the "what is" question. What is the def- what is this treaty? We'll come back to the sticking point. What does this treaty do? It's called a reciprocal access agreement, and it's designed to smooth the way for Japanese and Australian defence personnel to train on each other's te- territory. Yeah. And so, it's a lot of nuts and bolts, really. It's it's not so much a you know one of these major defence treaties which you know, obliges one to come to the aid of the other. Yeah, it's not it's more answers, about the nuts. Yeah. Of, yeah, it's more about the nuts and bolts of, you know, entry and exit procedures for the for those troops when they go to train, you know, even to the extent of what tax they might or might not pay and criminal jurisdiction, which we'll come to in a moment. But really it's reaching this in principle agreement after I think something like six years of negotiation. It's it it's again a signal and it will pave the way for increased defence cooperation between Japan and Australia. And there's sort of there's sensitivities on both sides, really, about troops from either country training on the soil of the other country. I mean, we can just obviously, you know, don't mention the war. With mentioning the war, there's obviously um, there's obviously that history. But also, Japan has had difficulties with American troops, hasn't it? Mm. Um, so you're right in saying it isn't Anzus. I mean, it isn't. Mm. But but in in the Japanese context, mm. and to a lesser degree in the Australian context, it's quite a big deal, this thing. Mm. It is a big deal. And you're right, that US, the last time there was a similar deal was the US Status of Forces Agreement, which is um, something like the 1960s. And, you know, Japan and the US security partners, security allies, despite that, there's been a lot of tension on the ground mm. with locals, particularly in Okinawa, about the presence of US troops. And in certain cases, whether... U.S. troops are punished adequately uh, if they commit crimes while in Japanese territory. So there is Which that domestic sense sensitivity yes, about um, ensuring when troops are on their land that they're brought to justice if they've transgressed, done serious crimes. Which brings us neatly to the sticking point. Why? So why is this inked in pencil rather than in pen? 
because, well, one of the major sticking point has been the death penalty. Japan retains the death penalty for the most serious crimes, such as murder or multiple murders generally. It is on the books mm. and Australia opposes the death penalty. Yeah. And the problem is whether in theory or in practice, Australian troops could be subjected to the death penalty if they commit a serious crime while in Japan. Yes. And so that's why we've sort of got, yes, we're into this treaty, mumble, 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 we'll work out the fine print later. How do you work out that fine print? Very difficultly. I, it's, it's not clear exactly how they've resolved it. The ABC reported that they'd gotten around it by saying that each case would be dealt with on a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. Law Council of Australia is not happy about that. Mm. It says it's a principled position to oppose the death penalty. You can't be having it at a the whim of, you know, it. you know, when it happens, the fudge is <laughs> yes. when it happens, I'm we'll have discussions. and today. You know, mm. yeah, exactly. Mm. You know, please don't subject them to the death penalty. Okay, well, <laughs> noted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there is some, we, we're told that there is some mechanism to ensure that the international legal obligations of both sides is, are respected. But we don't know what that means, and we won't know what that means until the legal text is released, probably next year. So it's not going to be signed properly till next year mm. when Prime Minister Suga is expected to visit Australia. But we don't know. No. We really don't know no, how they've resolved it, it. it. Yeah, it's fascinating too. And Well, they're obviously still on the path to resolving it. Otherwise, you would have had your pen out rather than your pencil out. So, okay, so that's a watch this space. Obviously, we'll bring you up to date with that once uh, once we actually understand what's going on there. We'll, be ha- we'll happily bring you up to date with how, on, how we sort of uh, swerve around the death penalty. Anyway, the other thing we mentioned a minute ago, which is the sort of bit of the bolt from the blue, which is Suga's stance on climate change. So let's tell the listeners about that, what's happened. Well, like Australia, really, the Abe administration had a goal of reaching net zero emissions it was a language along the lines of as soon as possible mm. in the second half of this century. Suga came along and very quickly announced a major policy commitment, which was to reach net zero by 2050, mm. which is what the scientists say is needed. No, quite. And, dangerous and it, climate change. It happened, didn't it? Sort of the, maybe my timing's slightly off, but it happened around about a week before the American election. Um, it was, I think it was late October. So yes, yes, that's right. It was very, very, it was in the in the shadow of the US election and was sort of interpreted that net zero commitment, commitment was interpreted at the time of Japan positioning for a change of administration in Washington because one, th- we, one thing we haven't foregrounded, America's kind of come and gone in this conversation, but Joe Biden, the incoming Democrat, has much stronger policy commitments on climate than his predecessor, Donald Trump, or, you know, soon-to-be predecessor, Donald Trump, assuming he ever vacates. But anyway, let's not not go there. Okay, so that happened the week before, or thereabouts, before Biden was elected, this net zero commitment. Now, obviously, Australia is now saying, we love net zero, except we won't say when we get there, and we won't do anything unless we can tell people how much it costs. So how was that finessed between the two leaders during Scott Morrison's flying visit? (laughs) In short, they both acknowledged each other's policies. (laughs) That's what the official document said. Uh, So Morrison, as you say, in Parliament in Australia after the US election and also on this trip to Japan, has been sounding more and more like a subscriber to net zero, but without saying <laughs> where. actually committing yourself. The timeline is important. The timeline <laughs> yes. is important. But what Morrison told Japanese business leaders and Prime Minister Suga, by all accounts, is that 
Australia shares the goal of net zero emissions. We just can't give the time frame yet. We just won't make um, By the way, we'd like to cooperate with you on hydrogen. Yeah. We'd like to cooperate with you and help with low emissions technologies. And Morrison mentioned a favourite aspect in all these talks, carbon capture and storage. Yes, yes. Well, Japan's had to sort of get out of nuclear, hasn't it, And uh, after the Fukushima disaster and is sort of embarking on its own energy transition as well. So, so that's the kind of interesting mm. back drop to that. Mm. It's Because they actually had an increase in fossil fuel use straight after Fukushima because the nuclear plants all went offline. But then, like like in Australia, increasingly business is moving. Some proposed coal-fired power stations in Japan were ceased, like Mm -hmm. the proposals they'd been proposed, but then they got axed in the last few years. And increasingly, there's pressure for, you know, climate risk to be assessed. So there's that momentum moving. And Japan, even though, you know, part of the net zero pledge includes reliance on nuclear, Mm. there is increasing emphasis on renewable energy and wind power. Yeah, which is fascinating. And it's sort of like, I guess, to square multiple circles, we've we've had visits during this podcast to China, Japan and America as well as here. It's sort of like the net zero pledge kind of is a gesture. Well, I mean, it's a thing. I desperately hope it's a thing because we need it to be, but it's a, it's it's a gesture to the new Biden administration and its priorities on the part of the new Japanese administration, right? We're on board for climate action. But it's also notwithstanding nice diplomatic words around respecting or acknowledging one another's policies, uh, there's sort of critical risks, economic risks, let alone, you know, let's set aside climate risk for one sec and just talk about economics. Mm. For Australia, we had China move in a net zero direction, we had South Korea move, and we had Japan move in a relatively short space of time. Again, I think largely anticipating more momentum being back into the global climate discussions. We should go briefly to Britain because, of course, Boris Johnson has been about on the phone too, trying to lobby for action because Britain is the host of the Glasgow International Climate mm. Talks at the end of next year. So so that's all happening. So then, But then Australia, a big fossil fuel exporter, mm. big exporter of gas, big exporter of coal, is looking at a proposition where its major export markets for our favoured commodity are, you know, on the way Mm. down and on the Mm. way down in the trajectory that many people listening to this podcast will see in their Mm. lifetimes. Yeah, it's not going to stop tomorrow, but it's definitely the the trajectory is clear. Yeah. And Japan, South Korea, China, they're all major buyers of gas and coal. These are things that the shift needs to be taken into account in Australia. We, you know, it's it's looking more like we're getting isolated Mm. on these issues. And it's not just that. As you say, the economic impact if we don't embrace the change and create jobs in the renewable space and technology to tackle climate change. Mm, we're, we're in deep shit, as it were. Anyway, that's a fairly crude note to end on, but let's uh, let's end there. Daniel, thank you for this chat. I really do appreciate it. Thank you to Miles Martignoni, who's the executive producer of the show. Thank you to Hannah. We'll be back next week. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free 
or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.